0: the sound. Can people hear me okay? Yeah, good, great. It's very odd um, sitting here in my dining room and assuming that (laughs) you're all hearing me. (laughs) It's a very odd experience I find. So um, why don't we sit just for a moment or two and gather together, bring our energies back together, in this virtual meditation hall, just as some people are finding their way back from lunch. It's fine if you wanna take a few minutes even looking at people on the screen and getting oriented to those of us who are here joining us for this retreat. Perhaps feeling our connection with our sangha who are sharing the values that we hold now for connecting more fully in mindfulness and wisdom and compassion. Our sangha. Just when I came on, uh, on the screen a little bit earlier there, perhaps you saw the beautiful photo of the spirit rock land for those of you, I was on about 10 minutes before and uh, the screenshot was really exquisite. And of course it made me miss the land and those of us who would have been there right now together. Some of you again would not have been because um, your circumstances, but um, you're here with us now. So, so I have this opportunity now to share a little bit with you my um, my dharma and my experience, and I. Uh, was really delighted when Temple first invited me to come on to this team, which was a long time ago, actually, (laughs) last year before, of course, all of this change that happened. But I was really happy to join because of the theme of equanimity, that this equanimity practice has been a real lifeline for me over the years of my practice. And I, I want to share a little bit about why that, how that is and why that has been so. But first to say that the Brahma Vihara practices in general have been very, very powerful for me. Um, I would say that they've all been lifelines to bring me back to myself, back to my heart when I began this practice a long, long time ago, I don't think I had any connection to my heart. Not that I was aware of. I, um, I felt like there was a, a kind of a, a, a constriction in my, my feeling life, my emotional life, and felt very stuck when I first started practicing. So the first, the first practice of loving-kindness was very, very strong for me to, again, the putting my hand on my heart and wishing myself well and wishing that I may be happy. This was a revelation. It was just a revelation for me as a, as a, a real um, a teaching and practice to... Hold myself with more kindness that did not come easily for me. So the practice of metta and compassion, joy and equanimity. And over the over my practice, I've really enjoyed getting a taste of of each flavor because each one is distinct. Each one has its own taste. The loving kindness really has to do with this quality of of friendliness. Kind of this this sense of friendliness and goodwill. Wishing that for myself and for others. This quality of compassion when that loving kindness meets the painful aspect of life, that suffering aspect of life and, and, and how the heart can quiver when it comes into contact with that pain and that suffering and wants to alleviate, wants to bring that pain to an end, really strong feeling in the heart when it's felt and the joy, this mudita, this, this happiness that arises when others are happy, like this joy that other people are experiencing something that brings happiness for them and again it's a it's such a uplifting kind of joyful quality in the heart happy when others are happy not not collapsing into some kind of envy or jealousy or self-pity and this this quality of equanimity which really grounds us and gives us some ground to rest upon to to settle and find some sense of inner peace this non-reactivity where we're we're not caught in reacting to the conditions that are arising this sense of balance this sense of ease and and each one working together supporting each other, this interconnection between all these four qualities. And we've been speaking about the equanimity on this retreat and equanimity, we, it's been mentioned, we can start to feel how the equanimity can ground the loving kindness so that that love doesn't fall too far into attachment and self-possessiveness, wanting someone or something for me and for what it gives me. But the equanimity helps release that because we see clearly that that attachment is going to be painful if I hold on too tightly. Let go. Let go. Let the heart be free in that love, which is really what true love is. Love, true love is only free love. Love with attachment is a different kind of love it has some gripping in it, some self, uh, self, uh, possessiveness in it. And the equanimity helps the compassion so that we don't fall into these strong states of despair on the one hand and anger on the other hand, when we really meet that pain and that suffering. So the equanimity helps us feel some way to hold our emotions, as Temple was talking about this morning, so, so that there, there's, more, there's more fluidity, there's more capacity to stay present and grounded when we meet the conditions that are painful and unpleasant. And the joy, the equanimity helps us So that when we feel that beautiful feeling of joy, we don't fall too, we don't get caught up in the bliss of that joy, which again is, then I get to have that for me, and we lose contact with the other that we're feeling happy for. It's like, oh great, now I get to feel really happy. It's almost like riding on the wave of that joy so that I get the bliss. So the equanimity helps ground us so we stay in true connection with the other and the happiness that is arising for them. We might see how when the equanimity isn't present, there's there's a way that it, it starts to become about me. And what I have and what I want and what I demand and what I expect and my attachments. And the equanimity helps us to begin to release that so we can see more clearly it's not just about me. In fact, we're trying to get out of the way so that more of the conditions of life can flow as they need to kind of trusting into an intelligent nature we call the dharma the dharma which is intelligent and is in harmony with all things so we start to let go we let go and we've been speaking about this the way that compassion the way love or metta whatever word you want to use how it, how it infuses the equanimity, so it, it's, it's caring and it's warm. It's not a c- cool or an indifferent, withdrawn equanimity. I think Temple said that co- could be a counterfeit equanimity. It, it looks like, but it's not really. Right. So when the, when, the, when the love or the metta or the compassion starts to infuse the heart the human heart, the equanimity is grounded in that love and that caring and that compassion. So so when I speak about equanimity, I can't really separate it from compassion. I can't separate it from love, And and I know that for a long time in my early practice I didn't really understand that. So I would um, look at those images of the Buddha that were always sitting on the altar, completely still, unmoving, not impacted or affected by anything. (laughs) And I thought that's what was supposed to, the experience was supposed to be like for me which which seem like not being impacted not being impacted by life not being touched by relationships and the world and the conditions of the world somehow somehow i needed to remove my heart and I really, really was confused for a long time. I, I thought that equanimity was the highest goal and the equanimity of the unmoving stillness of the mind, the non-reactive mind. And I when, I, when I would look at my own experience, I would see again and again, that's not where I was at. So it always felt like there was this gap And this unreachable goal in my practice that I I could never get to. And at times, you know, just really even maybe giving up or thinking I should just give up. It's like other people can get enlightened. Other people can open their hearts. Other people can find this unmoving stillness, but not me. But I didn't. (laughs) I didn't give up. I actually worked really hard and there was so much aversion, so much resistance, so much not liking my experience. Never really in a way meeting up to my own expectations in the practice. I don't know if any of you sometimes have that experience too somehow. You know not not good enough not doing it well enough you know that's that's not un, uncommon at all but our practice our mindfulness starts to help us recognize when that's arising so that we don't get as caught up in that particular storyline of who we're taking ourselves to be and to see if we can let it go <laughs> let it go and and return back, come back to our embodied presence. So more and more, I understood how to work with my mind, how to let go, what was actually some of the conditions that were causing more agitation, more pain, more irritation in my experience. I started to recognize the ways I was judging myself condemning myself hard on myself and the more and more as i saw that and i saw that that was not helpful that was not skillful that was not going to bring me closer to the 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 qualities of my heart that i so so much wanted to experience i could see that and more and more i could let go The teachings helped me start to get more of a flavor of these qualities, of these heart qualities. And um, particularly with equanimity, there's one story that I'd like to read that um, I love, and I, I love reading the story because I think it really points so much to this quality of equanimity when when the heart is free. And maybe some of you have heard the story about uh, Ha, ha Qin and the baby. It's a, a Zen story. And it goes like this. There was a monk named Ha Quin, who was well respected for his work among the people. In the village there lived a young woman, the daughter of the food sellers. The young woman became pregnant by her boyfriend who worked nearby in a fish market. When the parents found out about this, they were very angry and pressured her to reveal the name of the father. She wanted to protect the young man and blurted out the name of Quin as the father. After the baby was born, the, par- the parents took the baby to High Quinn. They told High Quinn that he was responsible for the baby and left the infant with him. He responded, is that so? and he simply accepted the responsibility for the child without further reaction. The monk had no experience with babies, but he began to care for its deeds, finding food, clothing, and warm shelter. The other villagers became very angry with Ha Quin for his offense and his reputation was trashed. These comments, though, did not affect Ha who continued to put his effort and attention into the care of the baby. After several years, the young woman was filled with remorse. She confessed to her parents the name of the true father and they immediately went to see High Quinn, apologized and took the the child back from them, back with them. High Quinn watched as they returned to their home with the child he had cared for since birth. And he replied, is that so? Is that so? It's like when the conditions arise, whether they catch us off guard or they blindside us or they're unexpected or we don't like it, we're angry about it. Is there a place within our heart where we can say, is that so? Is it like this? Or it's like this and then with an open heart we accept and open to those particular conditions so hearing stories like that and the teachings you know really give me a sense a sense of that that ground that that ground of my being that is possible maybe holding it as an aspiration i remember one experience that in in my early three month retreat uh, at the Insight Meditation Society, it was maybe the second three month retreat because I remember you know we have certain expectations when we go to a retreat center that it's going to be very quiet and everything is going to be really supportive and it's going to you know really be a beautiful beautiful you know the conditions are going to be set up in such a way that they're really going to support our practice. But, for, but there when we were uh, probably about two weeks into our three-month retreat, there was a pipe that broke right outside of the meditation hall, and they had to repair it. And so probably for about a week, although we didn't know how long it was going to go on, right outside the meditation hall all day long was a digger. And a digger that was really loud and really noisy. And it was digging in the ground and, you know, doing what it needed to do to repair that pipe. And so every time we went into the meditation hall, it was really loud with this mechanical sound of this this digger. And this was earlier in my practice. So, of course, I was really aversive. (laughs) I had no equanimity around it. And so I'd go and sit in the hall and I would just feel all this anger and all this, all this aversion and like it shouldn't be like this and why is it like this and this isn't supporting my practice and couldn't they have waited and don't they know how disturbing this is for, for me? Of course it was all about me. Right? And because the teachings are so beautiful and they're so supportive in terms of pointing us back to how to work with our minds, I knew, through my mindfulness, this was aversion. <laughs> this was resistance. And so I would see if I could note it. I could see if I could just be objectively present with the aversion to see it for what it was. And then see if I could keep rounding myself back into my body, into my posture, into my present moment and feel the, of course, the rep- repercussions of that agitation and that aversion, but to stay out of my storyline about it. And I did this, I, I did this day after day, and I knew that it was an opportunity for me to really untangle one of these very difficult patterns of my mind that gets so reactive and so aversive. And so it became... Right, so we say it was an opportunity. (laughs) The more that we can, you know, have the attitude of this is an opportunity, something starts to open up already. And what happened around day four or day five when I, I went into the meditation hall and sat down and I was doing hearing, you know, hearing, hearing, listening to the sounds, unpleasant, unpleasant. And then it just started to turn into pleasant sound. And it was just almost like Tibetan bells. It was like a symphony of bells reverberating through my mind stream and my heart stream. And it was my whole being just was lifted into bliss right in the middle of that experience. The the conditions of that didn't have to change for me for that possibility of actually going beyond my aversion, going beyond my resistance. And that was so important. It was so insightful to see so clearly that it was just my own mind just my own mind, my own reaction, my own demand, my own expectation and and how that just knotted up my heart and caused so much pain and suffering, and then to see how that released. That experience still informs me to this day. And and when I was reflecting on it today, I I was like, yes, that's still right here it's as if that experience happened yesterday. Because of the, the depth of the insight into knowing that was my own mind, independent of the conditions, that it was, it, the practice was asking me to have a different way of viewing the situation coming into a different relationship to the situation. And it's interesting that again, as I was reflecting on using this example in my talk today, right here in this environment, I'm in a construction site. And I haven't really mentioned that I don't think, but I live in a condominium uh, complex and there, renovating the buildings and it is so noisy (laughs) there's pounding and there's banging and there's sawing and and even with my I have to keep all my doors closed I can't have any fresh air because the noise is so loud and on top of that this week they decided to cut the trees the trees, the branches and many of the trees around here for fire protection so they've been cutting trees and in the last couple of days they've been shredding the branches so i don't know if you've heard <laughs> tree trunks and branches going through shredders on top of all the construction that's going on <laughs> And so at lunchtime, you know, instead of just going out on my patio and having some, you know, fresh air and some nope, that ain't happening. But this experience again is is so informing my heart that it's it's in the way that I almost can hold it where it's it's unpleasant, unpleasant vedana, unpleasant feeling tone that arises and passes. It comes and it goes, sometimes stronger, sometimes less strong. And I'm more aware of the impermanent nature and the vedana, the feeling tone of it, than anything else. There isn't any reaction. There isn't any resistance. It's unpleasant not so pleasant, <laughs> not so neutral, <laughs> just kind of coming, but coming and going, sometimes there, sometimes not there. And so there's the knowing, there's the awareness that these are changing conditions. I don't, if I get reactive or resistant or want it to be otherwise, then I'm going to feel the suffering of that. This is, this is wisdom this deep insight the wisdom that says in a way that this this the the, the dukkha the, the the unpleasant element in our life in this worldly condition isn't going to go away no matter how much i might wish for things to be otherwise this is how it is wisdom says suffering will not come to an end in any kind of a permanent way in this world. Have, have, has anybody witnessed it coming to an end permanently? <laughs> this this dukkha, right? This dukkha, right? I want to talk about this this first noble truth of the Buddha that this dukkha is part of life it's it's permanent in the world in these worldly conditions but it's not permanent in the mind and this is the freedom that the Buddha speaks about we we understand how to come into a different relationship with the conditions of our life the conditions of this world so that the mind can be free in relationship to the way things are this dukkha this this word dukkha in the in the pali sanskrit um is often translated as suffering, but it. I, the, there's a the, the translation I like is unsatisfactory. It's just the conditions are just unsatisfactory. There's no way around it, you know. This, this, that there is birth, aging, sickness, and death. That is the cycle of this worldly life samsara, the cycle of birth and death that we find ourselves in. This This is our human, worldly condition. And we will be separated from the things and the people that we love. We will be separated from that which is pleasurable. We will encounter that which is unpleasant. We won't be able to get what we want all the time. Things are constantly changing and slipping away. Even when we imagine that we have something for ourselves and it's going to give us that lasting pleasure, it slips away. Sometimes like sand slipping through our fingers, just like that. And we can argue with reality and we can throw that temper tantrum and we can get angry and upset and we don't want it to be like this. And yes, we will have those kinds of reactions. And then perhaps wisdom, mindfulness, compassion arises and says and we'll use shelley's sweetie <laughs> it's okay it'll be okay right? it's like like wisdom awareness love kind of tosses us back into reality where perhaps with the equanimity we can feel some ground in our awareness in our heart in our body in our being where we can take that breath and let go because wisdom says that yes things are going to slip away constantly we can't have what we want all the time so we learn how to relate to life in a whole different way, right? How to be in this very difficult situation. And and the first step, and I want to emphasize, the first step is acceptance. And that's the first step into equanimity. Any moment where you let go and come into more peace with what's happening, whatever it is, sounds, sensations in the body, the breath, the way we're breathing, the way our mind is, the way our emotions are, the way another person is, the way the situation is that we find ourselves in, the way the world is, the moment that we start to come into that equanimity and, and the, the, phrase, the phrase that I use and that I love is no matter how much I might wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Things are as they are. And that's the phrase over these years of my practice that I've come back to again and again and again. And I and I love the first part of that phrase, no matter how much I might wish for things to be otherwise, because I am wishing for things to be otherwise. Of course, I want things to be otherwise. And sometimes that otherwise wanting things to be otherwise comes from a a pure wish for myself and all beings and all my loved ones to be happy and well, which is a beautiful loving kindness wish. I, I want that, and yet if I hold on to that, if I grasp onto that, if I start to demand it and expect it and then get surprised that it doesn't happen that way, I'm out of balance. I've lost the connection with my heart, and I've gone into my mind and my ego mind and my sense of selfing, and I'm just caught again. So, no matter how much I wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And interesting because the first three, the the loving kindness, the compassion, and the joy, are all the wishing for things to be otherwise, (laughs) right? In the face of somebody not being so happy, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be well. We're wishing for that to be otherwise. With compassion, may you be free of your pain and your suffering. May you be free of the sorrow. We're wishing for that wholeheartedly, and it's beautiful. In the the joy with the mudita, we wish that that the other's happiness never comes to an end. May you always be this happy. May you always have your heart be so fulfilled. We wish for that. Our heart, I can feel as I speak about it, my heart can burst open with that wish, wanting that so much. And yet, if I want it so much that I demand it and expect it, I'm going to just topple over and lose my sense of presence and heartfulness and clarity and connection with my, my wisdom and my insight into the way things really are. So equanimity and the mindfulness and the equanimity and the mindfulness with the warm, caring, compassion just brings me back. And I settle down once again, and I, I feel my feet, and I feel my body, and I come back into an embodied presence where I'm here again. I'm here connected to reality as it is. So it's an interesting kind of paradox with the Brahma viharas, and it was something that took me a long time to figure out. And a lot of people ask about that. You know, about how, how can we wish for f- th- things to be different, people to be different, when we're trying to let go and accept things the way they are. <laughs> so acceptance is the first step. It's like we, we almost can't move forward into more expansion and openness unless we're sitting, standing on the ground of acceptance. And it's only this moment. I'm not talking about an absolute acceptance all the time. In this moment, in relationship to the conditions that are present right now, that's all. Can I come into a relationship with that, with an open-hearted acceptance? That's all. We're not asking for anything more than that. Maybe I can do it. Maybe I can't do it. And then there's another moment. I get another chance. I get another opportunity. Isn't the universe benevolent, continually giving us more opportunity? We didn't do so well on that last one. I didn't do so well that last week. I really messed up with that relationship. Oh, I get another opportunity. I get another chance. I get another chance to do it completely differently. Can I, can I meet this moment with an open heart? That has been so important in my practice to know that I only have to manage this moment. Anytime my mind moves even a little bit into the future with agitation and worry, I need to come back and see if I can manage just this moment the way it is now. Or if I fall back into some past and I'm agitated and 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 angry it's like just come here and and see what's what's happening now it's like the needle the temple was speaking about on on the record you know just this moment as i'm speaking to you i'm i'm hearing the symphony of shredding branches and trees (laughs) is so interesting as a backdrop. And I there are moments when my mind can go to, but trees are so important. How can they take out some of the trees? We need the trees for for our oxygen and you know replenishing the the, the clean air, the good air. And my mind can go there and then I come back. You know, just staying, staying present again and again. And I, don't ex- I, I, I accept what's happening, not because it's right or better, but I accept what's happening because it's what's happening. Without any of my judgments, without any of my overlay, without any of what my, my personal preferences of liking and disliking and wanting and not wanting, I accept it because it's what's true. In this moment, it's what's true. And my whole orientation in my practice is to know what's true. Truth is all that matters to me, to know what's true. And what's true in this moment because that's all there is. This is, this is, when we speak about reality, this is all there is. It's what, we, it's what we can know directly. It's what we can taste and touch and hear and feel and sense and breathe. That's all. And if I act from some kind of a reactive place, then I'm not going to be so grounded and connected. And then probably the results are not gonna be very favorable. This is the Dhammapada, the similar one that Shelley read yesterday. We are what we think, all that we are arises from our thoughts, with our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind or a pure heart, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So we're trying to get some sense of what it means when we speak about a pure heart, a pure mind. And what's being pointed to is the equanimity, a mind that is free of attachment and aversion, reaction and resistance right in the moment. And then again, right in this moment, can I let go? Can I let go of what's gripping me which is usually through the storyline it's usually through what i'm thinking about or what i'm cognizing what i'm imagining what i'm fantasizing and our mindfulness in this the foundations of mindfulness as we're embodied in in our in our in our, in our, in our the grounding through our body and we start to be aware of the movements of the mind and the movements of the emotions. We start to understand what we need to let go of that brings about more pain and suffering, and what to hold on to. We could say that what to hold on to that's actually going to bring about more, uh, more ease, more sense of well being, more happiness. We start to work with our mind. This is the fourth foundation. We start to work with our mind more directly. Letting go of the, of the resistances and the contractions, but following the beautiful qualities of the heart. When there's a, a thought that arises that says, I wonder how my neighbor is doing. I, maybe I should call and check on them. That's a beautiful, pure movement of the heart-mind. There's no attachment. There doesn't have to be. Maybe maybe there is. It's always important for us to keep checking. Just this movement of the heart. Maybe I need to go... Um, get some food, not even thinking about another, I don't have much food in the house, I really need to be taking better care of myself it's a beautiful movement of the heart we want to to know what to follow and know what not to follow this is how we begin training our mind, to start to have more mastery over the mind And sometimes it's hard. And there's this beautiful movement now that we have available to us of the mindful self-compassion that has come about with the the beautiful work of of Kristin Neff and uh, Christopher Germer, who really brought these some beautiful practices to us to help us, support us with the self-compassion when it's really, really hard And the three simple phrases, sometimes just putting our hand on our heart when it's really hard and just saying, this is hard. This is a moment of suffering. And the second phrase is, and I'm not alone. And it really helps us connect with the conditions in the world that we're not alone. We're never alone in our suffering. And the third, may I hold myself with kindness. May I hold what's happening with kindness. And it really brings forth the compassion, even when there's no equanimity. It's the wisdom and the loving kindness that brings it forth because we know that this is hard and there's not much equanimity, there's not much balance. So we start where we are we don't have to be any other in any other place in our practice we start where we are this is the compassion with equanimity breathing and grounding right into our experience as it is moment to moment to moment my my newest equanimity phrase now this is the way my heart is right now this is the way my heart is right now so maybe just as I finish just maybe checking in with yourselves if you feel you'd like to put your hand on your heart Maybe trying on that phrase, this is the way my heart is right now, and breathing with that and see if you can feel your body and your quality of compassionate awareness just where you are. It doesn't have to be any different than it is. You don't need to be any different than you are. This is how my heart is right now. And let's just take a moment or two and sit quietly absorbing this beautiful dharma that is being offered to us the dharma that was offered to me that I can now impart and hoping that in some way it might benefit you Thank you so much for your attention this time. And I'd love to open up the the screen. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.